2: Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Fleenor. And I'm your other host, Sarah Century. Now today we have a very special guest, and that is Judith Slays, who is also the writer Veronique Hubois, who we had on here before, a culture critic who has many, many interesting things to say. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Um, right that's that's kind of a lot of pressure to say we've got interesting things to say because we just kind of we like to talk rubbish yeah you know and and just kind of see what sticks to the wall
3: i think that's a great definition of our podcast
1: (laughs) well then then we've come to the right place um we hope right so where are the the drag persona right of of veronique and we decided to give her a bit of. of a leg up she's, she's she needs her ass she's she's done enough um for the community <laughs> in general right
2: yeah
1: the, the whole gig here right is supposed to be like a demonic possession type of a thing that we're a centuries old demon has possessed this poor hapless transgender um drag queen and we just kind of do things you know it, it's like fight club in a way but far more feminine uh you know one goes to sleep <laughs> the other wakes up She wakes up and she's got like 6, 10.99 for jobs that she never knew that she had, right? (laughs) We fuck up her taxes every fucking year, right? With these weird night jobs that we do. But sadly, you cannot get a projectionist job anymore. They don't fucking do that. That's all riding from from hell and back doing 3 a.m. Postmates, right? (laughs) Um, But enough of the fucking around, right? So... What we've done this time to, to commandeer her time and efforts is we've kind of taken over her Patreon account, which she's neglected for a long fucking time right? And it's just kind of <laughs> been an ongoing tip jar that we hope that you forgot that you signed up to to kind of <laughs> compensate us for our comicocity rising and other kind of basic things like that, right? So you've purchased for us like a um, eyeshadow palette, stuff like that, the things that you need to do, drag and all that, that reoccurring expenses. all that kind of things. But we'd like to expand and go beyond, right? So we're going to start a new Patreon campaign uh, to do a series of YouTube videos that are specifically of an educational bent on transgender studies, right? And it's going to be a bit more scholastic, right, than you're probably used to on YouTube, depending on what your interests are, of course. And we're jazzing it up, right? By doing the voice, doing the makeup, doing all this, giving your proverbial um, spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down, right? Because who doesn't love the wacky looks and these kind of things to go along with a bit of a more serious subject? But all this is kind of come from the fact that we don't particularly enjoy our position in the industry comics ways and sort of culturally as being trans in particular because... Um, something happens that, that we now understand, right, to, to every trans person, trans women known by any people. Like you come out, you say, right, we're this, this is our name. And people are like, OK, cool, right. But then the questions come in, right? And you've got to explain everything. <laughs> and so you never want to say this thing is precisely like that, right? But it's very much like being kind of part of a diaspora, right? If you say, OK, well, my grand came from Ireland, right, or Scotland, <laughs> as the case may be, or anywhere like this. And they're like, great! Can you tell us three hundred years of history about Scotland? You know <laughs> that you've grown up in the United Fucking States. No, you yeah, can't do that, right? They'll be like, imagine this: if you said, Emma, explain a frayed Mars bar to us, because you've got a Glaswegian accent. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? We've never eaten a frayed Mars bar before. We have one or two, but we never made and we don't know the culture. You know, right? Be like, what's to do with Iron Brew, right? Why do you you're like? Why do you drink that Naf soda? We've never had it don't know we've never eaten haggis we've never picked up a set of bagpipes right um and it, it, it's sort of an unattended consequence of of the whole harvey milk gambit right god let rest his soul um but the, the whole thing is like if you come out and it's dangerous right but if you can do it safely come out then people know you right and then they're like we've well, got a gay person a lesbian person or whatever it is this case may be in your life and now the stakes are personal. They're not abstract. They're not some weirdos down on the Castro at the stud when it used to be open at rep to the stud, right? Mm-hmm. But what happens in the current context of trans hypervisibility and all this, we're like, oh, great, we found one. Now let's ask all our questions to it. <laughs> right. um, and, and so one thing that we've learned from various strains of activism Particularly coming up through Tumblr in the 2010s, unfortunately, right? What a fucking gauntlet that was. <laughs> um, right, but if you know, you know. Um,
2: if you survived,
1: right? But then you know you get bombarded with these questions. Particularly, you get the PMs, you get the replies, you get all this shit. People, and you tell them all these kinds of things. And even if you've got all the answers, do, do you want to be sitting there answering every single question? Mm-hmm. But every single, even if they're not sea lions or reply guys, even if they generally want to know, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times. The stock answer is Google it. Yeah. Right? And here's the thing. We understand that spirit. We've been there. Right? We've certainly been there. But, and this is particularly the case with trans issues, right, is if you Google it, number one, (laughs) you might not find an answer. Number two... The answers that you find may be quite bad, and they're getting yeah, mm-hmm. worse as days go on, right? Mm-hmm. Because we all talk about the anti-radicalization pipeline of YouTube, right? You mm-hmm. watch one nice thing, they're like, "Oh, let's watch a history video about the the California state flag," and then all of a sudden, you've got eight videos lined up about Ben Shapiro screaming at St. Yuga, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's just mm-hmm. like, why? Like, what the fuck is going on, right? So. Um, and, and there's not necessarily always bad actors, but there's certain actors who have certain things to say on trans issues that are flooding the zone when it comes to looking at YouTube and places like that. And it's just like the books that you want to find on trans issues, they're not particularly easy. There's no autobiography of Malcolm X mm-hmm. of trans issues, right? You, you can start off with like Whipping Girl by Julia Serrano and like Excluded also by her. And all these kinds of things are these old Leslie Feinberg books. And there's some things you can find. They're not always cheap. They're not always easy to get, right? I mean, if you want to understand just, like, basic trans history, then you go to Susan Stryker, and it's just called Transgender History, right? Yeah, and, and it's quite lovely. Is, yes, in, in great. Charting <laughs> those, those basic things roughly since World War II until roughly now, right? So you get the mm-hmm. broad arcs of history, but you don't have these big quintessential mm-hmm. seminal things that lay it all out and teach you the shite in that way, the way that we have for feminism, or for cis gay history, or cis lesbian history, for example, they're not quite that easy to do. And so the other part of why I want to launch into this, because everybody's like, well, why you? Why you? Why now? And why not this person, that person, or the other person, right? Um, and the people that you're thinking of, typically, when we bring this up of what exists, it's not front page headlines or analysis and these kinds of things. It's the op-ed page, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's that or it's another thing, right? So. Typically, there's a lot of them that are like, you know, this is how to navigate pronouns, right? Or mm-hmm. here's a script of how to ask for someone's pronouns, or like, what happens if you do this or that? Or just kind of these sort of like basic definitions of gender and sexuality that are aimed towards making you a bit more amenable to the perspective of trans people in general, right? And so those things are kind of nice on the spot, sort of like corrective behaviors and these kinds of things. But the op ed side of things is part of like, how reactive the discourse always is, right? There's an inciting incident. There's a controversy. Typically, it's something quite fucking bad, right? Like Nikki DeJagger mm-hmm. getting outed, right? And all, all these types of things. So then you're like, okay, now we've got a scramble. We've got to write down some notes and we got to get an article about, it, right? And so obviously there's issues with SEO and quick turnarounds and that, that face all of this. But you're always reacting to something else, right? And you can't really learn behaviors that will take you forward in life by constantly looking at reactions to things that went wrong. Because they're only going to narrowly teach you about what went wrong in that instance, right? And mm-hmm. there's particular fucking consequences to that entire thing in the comic book industry, right? Because we became, whether we want to or not, kind of the, the ombudsman or one of the ombudsmen um, or ombudswomen. You can put an X instead of in there if you like one, would suppose. But <laughs> this kind of like um, oversight office of, of transgenderism in the comic books the funny mm-hmm. pages right um since you was a 2014 2050 something like that with a whole airboy fracas here. Right, um, yeah right and so here's the thing if we look at this cause and effect anybody who read and, and understood and internalized the issues of what was wrong with airboy that wasn't going to help let's say um gail simone figure out what was wrong with what she did in plastic man right they're kind right, of they're yeah. they're not precisely the same thing right or figuring out why the execution of these things in saga is not particularly helpful, right? right? You, right. You're not. You're only going to learn these specific fucking scenarios, right?
2: Right, right. right. Yeah. It's different intention and yet still also hurtful. So it's like, well, you can be a person of different intentions and still cause this ridiculous situation. Right. So I think that that's part of why people don't always learn from it because they're like, well, if my intentions are good, then it must be fine. <laughs> and it's like, no.
1: Right. And and that's almost a separate issue. Um, yeah. cause the point we want to drive at here is more that like, here's a better example, right. Um, that the, the whole, Jim the holograms thing where it was kind of it was okay but the whole coming out scene for blaze it was like okay great but it kind of didn't do justice to sort of like how difficult that scenario is you know and Mm -hmm. it's it was a nice try um and and people certainly read our analysis of it a lot more you know maliciously than intended i think but anyway the point is on that one is that this was about coming out right and and how do we frame these coming out narratives that do justice to how difficult this can be right and what the outcomes are right even if it's a positive outcome being like what does a positive outcome look like right it was very it was ambivalent and that's fine right but that's also why it was kind of like well they've got a trans artist on the series and it's like sure great but why would the pressure even be on her to be the one to say this is how you do it perfectly right mm-hmm. when you're a cartoonist who, who lives and works at home and you're not like out doing all these things or you've not been an activist for years, then no, these are fine-grained interactions that require, you know, a couple of different people to take a look at, right? But the, the point is, is, is if, you, if you look at that one and you look at this this comic that's about coming out, great. But then you're going to do a completely different scenario of like how to talk about genitals. Like they're like, it's it's not even apples and oranges. Is it? It's an apples and a fucking rare steak,
3: right?
1: <laughs> yeah. um, they're just totally different <laughs> scenarios. So you, you, you can't just sit here and be like, you know play chess with yourself like okay what's someone gonna fuck up next right and, and <laughs> anticipate it right because nobody saw man eaters come in right
2: oh god yeah no, no that they was didn't. quite they a surprise
1: Right. well a year beforehand right nobody would have uh would have quite understood what was going to happen there and nope and so you, you can't always be doing these prophylactic things or reactive things and it's like it would be great if there's an entire network of um Consultants, right, Um, that were, you know, well compensated and credited for their work always. And there are many logistical issues that make this difficult, right, to do that. But even so, even if you're always hiring someone to help you, right, and we've done consulting and we'll do consulting again, it's fine. It's good work if you can get it. And there's benefits to it, too, in terms of industry experience, learning what workflows look like, these kinds of things. But it's not an end game solution, right? It should be used, looked at as a fucking stopgap. Right. Not a permanent solution. And the problem is, is when these gigs first started to get popular and people started to know that you could do this. First of all, you've got to have the self-awareness to say we need a consultant to deal with this. Right. And right. very few people do. And it's not a read. It's not a criticism, It's just a fact of nature that we discovered. Very few people are like, no, I don't think I can handle this. So let's right. go find somebody who can. Right. So you are already t- dealing with a smaller pool. Right. But the other problem is, is that you're still in this reactive stomp it as it like whack-a-mole type of a situation right and just because you've had a consultant once or twice you're not necessarily learning the background information you're not refining your critical problem solving skills and all this your critical thinking skills you're not improving them expanding them you've got someone to do that for you right Mm -hmm. so it just creates this kind of perpetual cycle of emotional labor and labor labor and and not promoting people to to grow to pursue and learn these things on their own in their own time in their own way and bring that back and have a different way now of looking at the world right Uh, you know if you if you give a man a fish he's for a day right if you teach him how to fish he'll feed himself right Mm -hmm. and so that's what we're trying to do here right so that instead of being like oh what about this what about that right right, right. in these these in the moment questions like no sit down Right. <laughs> Commit a few hours over however long you want because they're YouTube videos. So you can stop them, you can start them, you can do whatever you want. But we'll take you through, and we're not going to tell you do this, don't do that. Like right? It's not didactic in that way. It's just going to be here's an education. Here are the ways that that we have in the West since the Enlightenment looked at things like gender and sex, right? And 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 what the consequences of that are. And here are different ways of thinking about, it right? And we build on that structure to go through trans history and all these kinds of things. To give you a broad basis to understand the foundation. Because if you're leaping ahead and, and out of the clear blue skate with no serious background in gender studies or LBGT studies, queer studies, or, or trans stuff specifically, and you're, and you're trying to write a story about when and how to disclose trans status right, as, a, as a trans woman dating a cisgender man, and you are a cisgender woman writing this comic or you're a cisgender man writing this comic, Then, like, you are going way out there, right? You are trying to do (laughs) calculus, lad, when you have not learned your fucking multiplication tables. But nobody looks at it like that, right? Because it's a humanities that's slightly different, right? But no one looks at that and and realizes these are complex things that have, like, 18 different layers to them. And you're educated in maybe one of them. So what we Mm. want to do is create a foundation for a lifelong learning in this audience and you don't have to take it further into specifically trans stuff right because we'll be talking about lots about Michel foucault and like Judith butler and all these kinds of things because once you understand the full spectrum of what it means to pass in society anything and as a mechanism for control you might rethink some things and how this impacts your own (laughs) life in, 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 in productive ways right so it's not just here i'm gonna give you an education on me and we feel entitled to to demand that you educate yourself on us in that way um but if if you want to sure have at it right and and you're probably going to take something valuable for yourself entirely independent of us from the experience we hope
3: and you know i i think too judith like as a trans non-binary person i don't know everything about what it means to be trans in every kind of transness. Trans is a very big thing. It's very broad and how wonderful to be able to be connected to the history of transness in a very specific way. I'm really excited about this. And I think that we talked about with Rhea Brodel's project, which is a trans non-binary project, which heroes, you know, the importance of having our connection to our history, to where, we come from and, and to the ethics and philosophy behind gender and sexuality I think it's really exciting to think yeah cis people who, allies are going to learn a lot but also like trans folks I think can learn a lot and maybe if you want to have better answers for people you can do it and maybe if you just want to know for your damn self like I just want to know for my damn self so I'm super pumped I am already a patron and I am going to be like boom boom I'll be there every <laughs> single time
2: yeah
1: Right, and that's just it, of course, right? Because um, again, a big thing that we want to do in this and everything that we're doing down the road is is, is to break out of this this secentric view of of just about everything, right, culturally and scholastically and all of that. But yeah. so so yeah, right. There there is a lot of uh, potential self knowledge and self learning in all of this, Um and like for us, these videos, this course is not going to be um like totally pan trans everything right it is going mm-hmm. to be the first half of the course is going to be a bit broader right because it's dealing with broad theory ideas about gender and sexuality and how we view them and how they're presented to us and the ways that the mechanics of, of power dictate them to us right That that's a lot of the first half a lot of the second half is going to be a bit more focused on on trans women's history particularly me- medical treatment right and activism these kinds mm-hmm. of things because it's it's what we know it's what we have the history and the 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 lived experience to do so we would certainly invite anybody else who is is better representative of the non-binary community or trans men particularly or just you know afab um queer people in general to to take this model and run with it it's very open source right um we're not particularly worried about the way people use these resources because we want them to get used right um but when you talk about, like, knowing our own history and learning our whole history, like, it, it kind of gets back at the whole Harvey Milk thing that I was saying, that you cannot be, we're not ready-made fountains of our own history. <laughs> but the big kind of, like, epiphany moment that we decided, that, yes, we want to do drag, specifically become a drag queen, was a conversation that Sasha Velour had with RuPaul towards the end of, that was season nine, I suppose, of Drag Race. So, um, and, and Sasha said, drag queens are the keepers of lbgt history right um and we don't remember the exact quote but it's like we tell it we shift it and that was just such a big important thing to us because we were first attracted to sasha Valor, um as you know like w- what she was doing with like how she framed the the city outfit right the first runway in the season was like give us a depiction of your city represent your city right and she was coming from new york so what she did was she had like the iconography of Basquiat with a crown that she usually does, but it's there too, right? And she had this like Warhol print that rolled down and there's a bit of a Keith Haring thing going on too. But it was a very specifically queer art history of New York, right? Mm -hmm. And we're an art history major. So we're like, yes, we love this. We love this. (laughs) That you went, people would say, oh, it was too obvious. It was too whatever. It wasn't subtle. Fine. Whatever. But the point was, <laughs> is that she wanted to make her body a canvas for the queer art history of the city of New York, right? So it all tied back around in that conversation. We were like, yes, this is what we want to do, right? Because we're not, and, you know, God love the pageant queens, your, your Alyssa Edwards and your, you know, Fifi's and your, um, what's it, the, the, the terrible read you, wrote you um verse, like the, the, those types, great, good for you, we love you, you've got your lane. But a big reason why we didn't, you know, really contemplate track for ourselves before that because that was kind of what we saw and we're like well we're not quite pageant material to mm-hmm. you know steal a phrase from casey musgraves but um and we found this we're like whoa we can do this right we can be a comedy queen we can be goth we can do this um and so that's kind of what we want to really kind of explode out and then bring out quite literally in this project
2: that is incredibly cool i am so excited because as he said i am already a patron so this should be exciting.
3: I'm super pumped to hear you're going to be talking about Foucault and Butler. Mm. That's like the people I came up in who taught me everything about my queerness, about contextualizing it and thinking about it as more than than one thing. Um, and, and to me, it just seems like such a great opportunity to not just fill in the gaps that have happened because... I always think it's really one of the hardest things about being trans is that like you don't have necessarily parents who can teach you about your culture. And it's also one of the things that's really hard about being queer. And so you have to find ways to build culture. And I see so many queer and, and trans communities that are one generation of people who have created resilience. And then you get these opportunities to build multi-generational. That's really powerful. And to say we have a society that has actively tried to erase trans history and to reclaim that, to put that front and center and to say, let me walk you through it and let me walk you through big picture and then moving to the specific. To me, like that's that's exactly what we need. That's what the world needs so desperately. So, yay. Thank you.
1: Right. Yeah. And even if you, you just pick up Susan Staker's Transgender History, which is a seminal book that like mm-hmm. everybody should be reading, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and it's even the foundational text for the textbook that a large part of our course is built off of. Right. And it's the first undergrad level Transgender Studies textbook in English, at least, or so it says on on the ten, right? And so we hope they're telling the truth on that. But you know, <laughs> even having read um, that one book, Stryker's translated history that's gone under two or three revisions now, you, you go into this textbook and you're like, oh, right, I remember this. You know, we remember that from from that book, and that's from there, there, right? So, so even as the scholarship expands, it's still like what the base for this scholarship is. It's still quite narrow quite rare and and, and when you're reading um striker's book you come to understand that like trans history is cycles since you know the 1920s at least the cycles of forgetting right and and remembering and that's even true in a broader colonial sense right because you always hear sort of like oh what are all these new genders coming up on all these kinds of things there's only right. two of them this kind of stuff it's like well if you look beyond mm-hmm. 1492 and then you'll start to see that there were lots of cultures that had multiple genders and the ones that fell under the colonial sphere of influence of Europe had them crushed to slot people into mm-hmm. into easily gendered and and categorized roles of of labor, right? And and reproduction. And so mm-hmm. you kind of understand that process right in in a macro sense, but even in in a micro American-centric kind of point of view or at least Western century point of view, you you look at like the 1920s, you had all these breakthroughs and these lovely little bits of progress that were happening in Germany. Um, yes. And then the Nazis come around and they burn down this clinic. And like you know all of this clinical data it gets lost so quickly. And we're starting to recover more and more of it. Some of it's been bubbling up. So right. we've kind of closed a lot of those gaps. But the thing is, is that was however many fucking decades ago. Yeah. yeah. And so you have these things like um, the, the tragic case of the young lady whose story was co-opted by a shitty Eddie Redmayne movie. You know that one, right? And then right. A, f- a few years later, you know, Christine Jorgensen, right? Um, and, and so through, I don't know, those 70s, like things started kind of, there was a bit of a cultural uptick, if not necessarily a medical one. But, you know, you get higher visibility, and then you enter into the Reagan era and you rent cultural conservatism and the AIDS crisis and all this. And it just fucking disappears, right? Yeah, 100 um,
2: percent. Definitely.
1: And then you start to relearn through the 90s and it doesn't quite take and it disappears again, largely because particularly for trans women, the whole stealth era had a fucking iron grip on things. And then I don't know, you, you hit 2010 and Laverne Cox shows up and things kind of proceed as as we've seen. So there's just this with feminism The cycles that we know are you make a splash, you get something done, and there's a riptide. You know, first wave, you get the vote, and then there's a riptide. Second wave appears, and there's a riptide, right? Um, But the thing is, like, we always knew what the first wave was during the second, and what the second one was during the third, and all of this, right? That it was far more durable for many different reasons. And that's kind of something that's important to to think about and remember of just kind of how tenuous that this all has been up to this moment
2: right because i mean trans history gets overshadowed by straight history like or whatever you know how however you would put that and then you also have the fact of you know gay and lesbian history like kind of co-opting a lot of the work that trans communities have done specifically you know and there's a lot of overlap between communities and everything of course and people definitely like i don't know i've, I've just seen like a lot of times where i'm reading a book and it'll just be like and this was by LGBT people or something and then it's just like no I'm pretty sure just trans people did that actually <laughs> you know you see like a lot of trans history get erased uh, I think just from multiple angles right.
1: Right and and also it's kind of definitionally what we refer to as trans or not trans or these kinds of things like it shifts and it changes right because these are oh, yeah. our social constructs and y- you can only claim what you know right so sometimes this can get a bit dodgy. And and it's not just in trans history that these things happen. Because there are, you know, obvious acts of erasure sometimes. But then if you say, well, so-and-so did not necessarily call themselves trans, but we can see that the outlines of their life conform to what we recognize of it today. Right? So you want to be a bit careful, right, in, in honoring these kind of things. Because there's people around that say, oh, this Roman emperor was transgender. It's like, well okay because like sure if we want to say gender non-conforming for the standards of the time okay but right. it, it gets but into this is
3: a specific term that has a social context mm-hmm.
1: right? And also has a historical time period attached yeah. to it right and it, it is still a western construct in and of itself right mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. and so what you know you want to also get into respecting that particularly indigenous groupings of gender and things do not necessarily conform to what we call transgender in the here and now in western democracies and whatnot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you can't just universalize back down through history right and this is something that comes up again and again in art history and other history it's like we've got a prof that says that she refuses to do any kind of a psychoanalytic reading of a piece of artwork that appeared before psychoanalysis existed and you can kind of get into it back and forth on that right but she's got a point
0: mm-hmm. it
1: is that Like, Freud certainly wanted to go back and say, yeah, we've read the entire history of the Western canon, and we believe, and he believed, right, that all of that has applied since day one, right? But she's taking a separate step back and say, this is an analytic lens that came into existence here, right? And so, she only wants to look at it through works that could reflect that influence, right? And so it's kind of an important way to look at history, right? Because we're also big fans of just the way that Foucault looks at history in general and the way that he theorizes history, which is a bit closer into that.
3: That's what I was going to say is it, it felt like a very, to me, a very Foucaultian concept to say that we have to keep these terms in their time and context. And we have to understand them for what they are. So we can't look back and, like you were saying, say that this Roman emperor was trans. We can say gender variant. We can say had a different conception of gender. We can have all these ways we talk about it. But to apply terms retroactively is to limit both the term in the present and the term in the past.
1: Right, precisely. And, and you know, to be clear, we're not going to get that deep into anything until the second half of the started. Right? <laughs> so, it <laughs> Just because we do not want to scare the living shit out of anyone who might be like, they're like, we were so excited for this until she got into this absolute fucking Wangfest about just the dialectics of history and historicism. And then she fucking lost us, right? (laughs) We promise we'll go soft from the start and build up. That kind of thing, if it appears at all, will be deep. In the back end right <laughs> um yeah so you know fair dues you don't want to scare people away but it, it's like <laughs> any like we're, we're not professors right or anything like that we're not accredited but we've done some college and we know how to structure these things right so you start out mm-hmm. basic terms and terminology you know so like the outline like the first half of what we're going to do and this is all subject to change because we're all early fucking days on this but we just want to start out with. Basic terminology and why people use the terms that they do, and kind of stuff like that, which is slippery and shifting. So maybe in six months we got to read record again, because there's a new word that everybody uses, right? Only joking on that. But and then we want to tell you what the outline is, what outcomes that we hope you get are, and and what general resources there are out there, right? And we'll also be quite open about who we're leaning on and who we're citing because we want you to go read these books, go into the sources and see that you are not talking shite, number one, hopefully, and number two, what you get out of them, right? But we will get into some theory, right, um, with with gender and these kinds of things. We'll break down quite carefully what passing and visibility are, right? Because you can find, this is another one, right? You can find a lot of basic things where someone will take you through, this is what it means for passing, but they're only going to give you, this is how it applies to trans women, right, or trans men or trans people, right? And the problem is, is that we treat it as if it's this narrow phenomenon that only you know, applies to trans people in, in where it comes to gender, right? Or only, passing only applies to black people or people of color when it comes to race. And so we'll kind of break that open and be like, well, you only see these mechanisms, right? When they're applied to certain groups, otherwise it looks invisible. And so on and so on, right? Michel Foucault, discipline and punish, yada, yada, the panopticon, you know. Um, we'll teach you some some medical treatment history. We're not going to teach you how to medically do things surgically. No, we cannot do that your activist history, also like histories of feminism, right? And and we'll parallel that to be like, here's the history of of trans identity and, and trans experience from roughly World War II until now. And we'll parallel that with feminism, right? Because we don't want to come straight at the gate, guns blazing, and being turfs this, turfs that, blah, 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 right? And then kind of get into like, what was the second wave of feminism? Why did it organize itself the way that it did? And show you through our eyes, this development you know it's like they said when the inglorious passage trailer came out you've never seen war until you've seen it through the eyes of quentin tarantino and whether that's true or not we believe the same about ourselves in the second wave of feminism so you can look oh forward to that right and then and, and, and that's oh the that, that'll be the end of, of part one for the most part and then part two we'll get more into like getting deep into drag theoretically and historically, right? Because there's so much tangled up between those spaces, right? And, and the ways that they've been turned against each other. And we like to untangle that, right? Uh, apply the, the sword of Michael to the Gordian knot or whatever the metaphor is there. Um, and then get into more complex uh, questions of, of sexuality, right? And sexual practice. And then, you know, resistance and embodiment, right? And that's where we get really fucking into the weeds and start talking about the undercommons and queer theory and queer nationalism and all these kinds of like deep dank things right but you'll be ready for it by then and we'll make sure that you are
3: (laughs) (laughs) well it's exciting i think it's going to be
2: amazing and i cannot wait Hey, so I really like doing this podcast, and I think that's something that we're in agreement on. Yes. hard same. Oh, good. All right. Well, I just wanted to clear the air on that, <laughs> and I think that if I could choose anything to just do for a really long time, it'd probably be this podcast. So if you want to support us doing this podcast, we have a Patreon, which funds all kinds of things. For instance, website, Kate, who is our sound engineer music that we paid for that's from earth control pill that we love branding that we think is super sharp so if you like us you could go to patreon and you could give us a pledge and we have pledges from two dollars to twenty dollars what are some of our tiers? it's really fun we have them like
3: comic themed
2: so to you know capitalize on that comic book goodness
3: our four tiers are the two dollar tier of sidekick super support and everybody at a tier of two dollars or higher gets two free comic reviews a week sarah and i review comics we've been reading and tell you what's great about them which ones you can skip
2: and usually make a lot of ghostwriter jokes because Sarah's been reading a lot of Ghostwriter. <laughs> yeah, it's been a ton. And I'm just going to keep that going because I have a lot of fun with it. It's so much fun. It's one of my favorite parts of listening. <laughs> <laughs> then we have the $5 level
3: or higher, and that's our super pet of power. And y'all get a personally curated comic book reading list from the prior month's episodes. So, yeah, we know that sometimes we drop a lot of comic book names and it's hard to keep track. Baby, don't worry about it. We wrote it down for you. (laughs) At the $10 tier, which is our suave superhero, you get all of the stuff we've mentioned before. Plus access to special monthly episodes where we review books, TV shows, movies. Usually they have some kind of, if not comic book genre tie-in. But you know what? The world is our oyster. And also at that level, you get access to our super duper special monthly episode, which we were calling Intoxicated Comics, but we sound sober in it. So maybe we'll call it Sober Comics because that (laughs) seems like a better name. Drunk, but sound sober. Drunk But Sound Sober comics. And then at the highest level, our heroic HBIC, that's right, our heroic head bitches in charge, at the $20 (laughs) level or higher, you're going to get everything we've mentioned before plus access to a personalized, private, oh-so-exclusive Spotify playlist that goes with your reading list that everybody got at the $5 level or higher. We also do a ton of other bonus content, especially when things are rough. During lockdown, we've been doing a ton of new different recordings about things that we think people would enjoy reading or watching. We also have a super active Instagram, a super active Twitter, where we post comic book panels, places where you can find free comics right now. All of that is our contribution to continuing to build a beautiful comic book community full of fearless feminists and queer folks who want to make this the coolest community to be part of. And you know where you can join us? On patreon.com slash bitches on
2: comics. Yeah, that's what I was talking about. I was like you should go to patreon
0: you can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything you might shop while working eating or even listening to this podcast and however you shop we all know and love the thrill of the hunt but do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals
1: And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny, true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Do you have a sense of timeline in mind?
1: We do not. Precisely, right? Because we're going to go back to a bit of an older model of running a Patreon, right? According to how Patreon told us they thought the platform was going to get used, right? Because a lot of times... The way Patreon's work is they're tied to immediate deliverables, right? Or scheduled deliverables, right? So Mm -hmm. if you've got a podcast, then it's like, if you guys fund us at X level then you're getting x episodes a week right and, and your, your <laughs> basic familiar. your basic infrastructures are there right or for like a lewd cosplayer for example then it's like well we're going to do the tifa set this month and the next month it's the air set month after that right it's it's, it's some jojo show on their butthole so it's it's great right <laughs> um and that's the way that most patreons work but what we're doing is we're dialing back and so it used to be and and there are still you know patreons like this but The example they used to give is like, if you're a musician doing an album, then you can crowdsource basically the cost of developing it, right? Like they're going to pay you for your literal labor hours spent in the studio so that you can get that done instead of going to your day job or whatever, right? Or the Patreon will pay for you to get a better sound mixer or a new guitar or whatever it is, right? But it's it's more of a long-term investment. It's a little bit more like a Kickstarter in that way. In that Kickstarter is like, we're going to raise the money needed to build this thing, right? So the basic structure of this is going to be you are paying in to develop the series. You're not paying for access to the series straight out of the gate. So what we're doing is basically the more money we raise, the more time we can spend on it, the quicker mm-hmm. it's going to come out, right? And the better equipment we can afford to make it with. So that's kind of where it is. Like we're going to be quite basic when it comes to tiers we're basically just going to start out with like one tier above give whatever and it's going to be 10 bucks and if, if you put down the ten dollars then what you get is you're basically front row focus group and so what that means is as we develop the scripts for the individual chapters we're going to bring them to you first for our end we want to check for understanding we want to check are these episodes too long are they too short what do they miss right And that kind of stuff. So yeah, you're you're paying to be in a focus group. That's true, right? (laughs) Um, but at the same time, that means that we are prioritizing your learning outcomes, right? Because we don't necessarily know why everybody wants to get into this. Like Mm -hmm. from a certain perspective, we can guess that there will be creative professionals who want to learn these things to take into their disciplines, Mm comic book creators and artists tv writers whatever the fuck it is right people who want to get better at their portrayal of these things right in a broad sense and not just be watching for someone else to fuck up and learn not to fuck up in that very specific way <laughs> as we started the episode with right yeah um but then you also like what both of you were saying right that you're invested members you're solid citizens of the LGBTQIA plus plus community um, and anyone learn more for this, or you know, you you could be workers in any kind of field who want to kind of understand how to serve their community better. And you know, we cannot do workplace sensitivity training; we are not trained or certified <laughs> for that. But so we don't know who it is precisely we're always talking to, right? So if we get mm-hmm. a robust set of people who want to pledge the ten dollars or more, right, then then we can adapt the material as it will come out to reflect your learning outcomes, right? So you get first dibs um, and we're going to data mine the living shit out of anything you tell us, right? (laughs) To make this as good as possible, but we will not share it with the government. We will not share it with Jeff Bezos or anybody (laughs) under the alphabet umbrella at Google, right? Or Tim Cook. Um, But we will look at what you're telling us, right? And and we will adapt as much as we can to your learning, right? And so, but that also means that you get the first look at these, right? Because once we've got the scripts narrowed down, We'll record a video, not full production. It won't be a dress rehearsal, I'll tell you that fucking much, right? Um, so you get to take a look at this. You can see what we look like without coughing in the morning, right? Um, and so you get a first look at it and you get to give us feedback. But have also got to jump on everybody else who's ever going to see this, right? Um, so those are kind of like the perks of it. But of course, the point okay. is you're putting in money now, right, to support a venture that you hope will expand quite further to all kinds of people down the road. Oh, right.
2: yeah. Yes, I'm already signed up for $10. So I literally just have to sit here. <laughs> this is going to be great. How do you think it's going to relate to the comics writing that you've done
1: that we've done? Um, well, we can stop doing it, largely, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> um, and it isn't to say that we never want rake about comic books again, right? But we have been begging you people, (laughs) to let us stop fucking doing this ever since Airboy, right? And you know what? It was great because there were so many people who stepped up immediately and saw how pissed off we were at Airboy, right? Um, yeah. say like fuck this this is wrong let's go but of course 30 percent of the people at least know probably 60 percent will be will be a bit cynical but honest about it we're like ooh, there's drama right and then <laughs> love exploding these things and you know negative engagement gets get your clicks than positive, right. and all these kinds of things right um but this is just it. It, it, it is that we want to move away from a reactive cycle Right. Mm-hmm. From from having to pick up the pieces of someone else's shape every time. And so if, if we can buy ourselves the time to when we do just write about comics to do something like the extremist piece that talks about politics mm. and terrorism and all of this and isn't about sweeping up someone's mess. Great. And it's fantastic that it's been all quiet on the Western front for a bit since Manny is for the most part.
2: The one that came to mind was Rain Sinclair from the X Men, and I was just thinking about how almost like the universal response from critics was just like we don't even want to write about this. <laughs> like we, just, it's like you have to almost because it's like the thing that everybody's talking about, and people look to you for a response.
1: Right, and and precisely, but you know, it, it's going on five years since Airboy, yeah. and you, you can set the timer. All of that, right? And, and we've progressed in our life and, and the way things go. And it's just kind of, you want an exit strategy, but it, it it's also an opportunity to, to go back to that incident and the other ones and step away from the Patreon discussion to, to be like, let's reframe the stakes of representation. You know, now that we've got some distance from it, by we, we mean collectively the industry, but mm-hmm. also ourselves, like like us, Judith, and and veronique right um just the the ways that we put to come back and to look at this and to be like well it's great if people feel bad for what they've done or they get better or whatever right but that doesn't necessarily mean that we are able to properly assess the scope of the harm at the time Mm -hmm. particularly for us who we've started hormone therapy right now under this situation in the middle of this global plague and we've come a long way in terms of how we see ourselves and what our sexual history and and practices and and understanding of ourselves are since all of that happened right so it's sometimes you you do have to go back and look at these things and be like well we've got to change the conversation and so we've got to look back and what we did and say not necessarily what we did wrong but what we didn't know that we know now right that we can properly Mm -hmm. assess
3: right Well, it seems monumentally important to me that trans folks are not solely responsible for correcting Responding to and helping shape cis society for cis folks. It seems monumentally important to me that also trans folks, we are allowed to express ourselves and do our creative work and do the things that are where our energy and joy is. And that's also what I hear you saying, is that it's moving from this place of corralling and correcting to being able to be really doing something that you have a lot of passion for and a lot of aptitude for as well. It's like preemptive, right?
2: Like you get to do it on your own terms.
1: Right, of course. Um, And and you lose so much by having to adopt that whole thing, you know, and and this is just it. and, And it may not be the greatest thing to dwell on this, but. We've got that whole apology from Airboy kind of tattooed into our brains a bit because it was just such a big thing. But it's, you know, like you've got a guy like James Robinson who's saying that he wanted to use that experience to portray what a bad person he was. And, you know, it, it did not occur to him what it does when you use someone else's body to reflect mm. on yourself, right, oh. and why that was so brutally out of hand. And it, and it started on the first issue, right, because him and, and the cartoon – of the the artist there who never spoke a word that we know of about that entire thing, you know that they have a threesome with, with a fat woman, and the way that they cartooned her body was to show that this was a source of shame that these two guys would have sex with her, right? That that of course she cannot be a legitimate sexual being, right, with, with lives or whatever of her own, and and that becomes an issue particularly because there are so few counterbalances in these things, right? If mm-hmm. if you were to watch an episode of insecure and Issa hooks up with some douchebag bro right and she kind of shows herself as feeling objected by sleeping with this guy like great but bros have entire lobbying organizations to tell (laughs) us why it is that they're fantastic and it ranges from the situation to a, a certain currently sitting supreme court judge right and so where's the power where's the flow right so you're showing other people's bodies as objection and objectionable in order to show why you are degraded so you're showing their bodies and their sexuality as being particularly degraded and it's not that difficult Mm -hmm. to see that you're projecting this onto them this has so much to do with the problems of like trans women in particular being able to see ourselves as sexual beings right and and this to a certain extent gets back to that whole old conspiracy theory that gets trumped up as some kind of like medical theory called autogynophilia you've just got a fetish for yourself and you're not <laughs> oh, <right.
2: laughs>
1: actually legitimately feminine or, or female or anything, right? Because mm. why would anybody be attracted to that? That it's, it's, it's ludicrous, right? But it, mm-hmm. it has real stigmatizing issues. Because if you go back and you look at the way that that was drawn, it's these women with like hairy scrotums that are like hanging out on the floor of a dirty bathroom and all of these kinds of things. And it's just grotesque and just portrays us as, as being degraded and all of this, and it's just like, well, how is it that any of us are supposed to have any self-esteem about ourselves sexually if this is the way mm. that we are being portrayed? And, it, and it's like, why would it be a degraded or degrading experience to get a blowjob from a trans woman in a bathroom stall at a bar? Why would that be inherently degrading, mm-hmm. you know? Why wouldn't that be, you know, sexy and exciting for anyone, right? Um, we were carrying on a bit with, with, with another... <laughs> trans woman, and we said to her we were hit by that sudden fantasy of saying goodness me wouldn't we love to go down on you in a, in a club stall right and just kind of like just exercise mm-hmm. the shame and the degradation of that bullshit that robinson and hinkle put on us and be like no this isn't degraded like fuck it like sure it's, it's out of bounds in, in certain ways but fantasies <laughs> are right we right, should yeah. be allowed to fantasize out of bounds right but this was not fantasizing out of bounds it was projecting yep. you know the this objection right and we're never encouraged to know our own bodies as trans women and so there's a fun kind of parallel sort of like history of this between cisgender dominant feminism and trans women that kind of they almost got to it in orange is the new black right because you, you've got this episode where um Oh, goodness. What was Laverne Cox's character's name? She gives this seminar, right, on the vagina, right? This is the clitoris. No, you don't pee out of your clitoris, blah, 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 right? (laughs) And these kinds of things. And it kind of went to show just the lack of sexual education that these women had had. And there's this kind of largely inappropriate irony to, oh, it's a trans woman who surgically got one who's going to teach them all the facts about these things, right, although they were kind of also talking about the class privilege of her being a bit more middle class and having a better background to have learned these things normally, right, the way that you should. But this is just it because media narratives, for the most part, stop at the presumption that trans women are going to get surgically constructed vaginas, mm-hmm. that they will get GRS, that that this is what we do. And it's fucking hilarious, right, because this doctor that we've started seeing, he's, he's great very you know progressive very oh you want to do this let's do it here's what we have got to do right every visit he makes an allusion to the letter the letter of recommendation that you get to a surgeon to get you it know, it's like yeah and then you know a year down the road we'll get you that letter there has never been a conversation about that <laughs> do you want to do this do you not want to do this <laughs> It's, it's kind of like you, you sit down at a first date and the person across the table is like, yeah, if, if, you know, our relationship goes well, then two years time, you know, might buy a ring and propose. <laughs> and it's kind of like, whoa that's, there's a, quite a you're, you're giving a broad timeline to this, but you're assuming quite a lot here that, that we believe in marriage, right, that we want to get married to anyone at all, right? And it's kind of like that, that it's just sort of like this thing sitting at the end of the room. And it's like, well, we're not going to do that right so far as we know but it's important to leave this as an open question because this is this -hmm. is another one of those questions that they love to ask you are you gonna get the snip of course they never say the snip anymore right because that would be in politic Mm -hmm. but they assume you're gonna say yes Mm -hmm. for the most part or if you don't that it's scandalous that you don't but this is just it that like you don't know precisely where you're going to sit a year later on the hormones mm-hmm. and all these kinds of things. And mm-hmm. you don't quite know. But there, there's this assumption that you will or you're going to know the away. So and this is kind of a difficult thing to bring up because there's no conversations about it culturally. But we'd like to start off an extremely um, off color anecdote about our own lives with a reference to a movie from the 1990s. So if you've ever seen Pleasantville,
3: <laughs> it's,
1: it's this story where a couple of, I think they're supposed to be teenagers from the modern times, get dumped into this kind of leave it to beaver type of a 50s sitcom. And as they modernize this strange backwards world, it becomes more and more colorful, right? And there's this big um, turnaround scene where the the, the girl, she, she teaches the ma, you know, how it is to masturbate as a woman, you know, to, to stimulate a clitoris or what have you. And she's just absolutely shocked by this. And then but she's curious and curious, curious. And then finally she decides to to use these water spray in the, in the bathtub, right, to, to generate some <laughs> some friction, some pleasure. Right. And, and and so she has her first orgasm and, and the color spreads throughout. Right. It's such a lovely kind of American beauty meets Who Framed Roger Rabbit sort of a moment. But the point <laughs> well, is. Well, and the
3: tree outside of her house bursts into flames.
1: <laughs> we forgot about that. Yes, I had yes,
3: never. Yes. Okay, it turns out I had never seen this movie. And you were like, we might talk about it. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll watch it. I had never seen it. So I remember that tree bursting into flames. And I was like, that was a good <laughs> orgasm.
1: <laughs> you see, we've never seen the film.
3: I yeah. just bought a lot <laughs> of movie haven't?
1: magazines in the nineties. No, we've seen yeah. YouTube clips and these kinds of things. We have approximate knowledge of many things. We have <laughs> knowledge of few things. Um, apologies to Pendleton Ward for that one. Um, but right, but the point was is is that there was this this lacking of self knowledge, right? But it's probably the scene that's aged the worst in that entire movie. Because that's still fairly exclusive knowledge, even though you can watch (laughs) Broad City on television now that we're still that far behind. But this is just it. But trans women, we're never encouraged to explore our sexuality, right, in points of pleasure at all. There's very few social conversations about this. It's like, if you like this, then you like it. If you like that, then you like that, right? And nobody ever says, like, explore your sexual options. And your own body before you decide to make a very permanent decision about the sexual mm. organs in your body, right? Mm. Which is bonkers because they always like to say, "Well, think about it very hard before you transition, before you take the pills, before you you get the surgery." They always tell you make sure you really want it, right? But they don't quantify mm. any of that, that and what it could look like, or what the spectrums of sexuality could be, right? Because if you look at what pornography was like ten years ago, or even five years ago extremely cis-centric, right? And all to do with, 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 you're going to find depictions of trans women in, in pornography. Like, I'm certain that, that there have been great depictions and broad depictions for a long time, right? but they're very difficult to find until quite recently. So it's just kind of always, well, yeah, she's she's going to have sex with a dude. And if he's a quote-unquote chaser, then he's going to want to suck her dick more than he's going to want to do anything else, right? But the trans woman's probably a bottom, maybe a top, if you're really quite lucky with the dude, right? But that's what it was, right? The concept of any kind of idea of trans for transsexuality or, like, any kind of queer WLW, um, Mm -hmm. you know, attraction between... Trans women and cis women was was such a repressed part of what could be possible in porn, right? right? Largely because of longstanding assumptions about who buys porn and thus who exerts influence over the market, right? If it's just men who are buying it and predominantly straight men buying it, then you're going to see those reflections, right? But obviously, we've got things like OnlyFans now where there's a large self-produced spectrum of things. So individual performers can say they can find that balance between this is what we think is hot and what we want to explore. And these are the things that we know that our fan base wants. So there's always a bit of a push and pull there, right? But when you have a more intimate connection with your audience in that way, then perhaps you can find desires that did not get reflected in the assumed mm. desires of the audience prior to that, right? Mm. So you've got that side of things, but there also is within the mainstream, like a huge flourishing of broader representation of transsexuality. Like, if we go back to the 1990s, when names like, I don't know, um, Jen and Jameson were quite prominent. If you wanted to attain the pinnacle of success in the industry and you were a white woman who was quite pretty by those standards, then you could not be on camera having sex with black men. No, 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 no. Cannot do that. Anal sex is a no as well. Right. Or maybe like once every five years you might be able to do, <laughs> you know, have some fun that way um trans performers. oh goodness me we did not even talk about that that was no, no 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 um so any of those things that you did right and there's actually a Kanye West um lyric that that's quite apt is that all of these things were the more a performer did that the more that she was seen to be degraded or a wild child or whatever and had no means into the, the mainstream and the big gigs and the big studios it was this no your sexual availability had to be extremely limited to straight-weight men and the odd sexually fluid woman who passed as quite heterosexual. And that was the way things were. But if you look at the landscape now, it's probably still less than half. But if you look at the top female performers, because that's how success is always looked at pornography, is, is white female cisgender performers. But if you look at the proportion of them that are now openly recording with trans women um, that have not undergone bottom surgery, that have got their decks and use them proudly... The proportion has skyrocketed in the last two years, even. There's been just an explosive change in the industry where we get to see that. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's always done perfectly or well, because you can look at kink.com and and their old armory that they used to have in San Francisco. And so they would have a lot of trans-inclusive scenes that they would shoot, right? And and the individual scenes could be quite good and quite fun. But they would also like have tags on them like T S Pussy Hunter, right? That that kind of mm-hmm. frames things in a very unfortunate light that is still very fetishistic. And not fetishistic in a nice way that <laughs> that fetish and BDSM work is, but just kind of a very lurid um thing that kind of like reduces you down to this thing, which is mm-hmm. too bad, right? Because there's lots of great output there. And things like that were very, very important in terms of like moving this into the mainstream and getting bigger performers to look into that and to give it a shot if they wanted to, right? Um so you always get these weird transitionary periods in in history, but there's that, right? But now you've got something like what Brie Mills does. And uh and then she is she is like a industry legend when it comes to being a lesbian porn director. And so she's got her own little website project thing called Transfixed and it's purely focused on trans women and cis women performers right mm-hmm. um and so you could say it would be great if, if she expanded that whole thing into trans for trans and made it a bit more open up but it w- it's still it's a high quality affair right and it's not fixated on these like oh no she's got a dick and all this there's none of those conversations right everything mm-hmm. is just taken as it is and, and everything is assumed to be normal as presented right there's no stupid exotification or, or fixation And it's also quite a cultural blow, the things that they're doing there, because you've got scenes that are based on Thelma and Louise, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The Neon Demon, the um, Nicholas Winding Refn film. And that particular scene does not have anything to do with necrophilia. So you don't have to worry about that. (laughs) Um, Because, of course, there was, you know, lesbian necrophilia in um, The Neon Demon. So you you can still watch that scene if you're not into that. Um, And there's even one. that's based on the Vanity Fair magazine cover of Katie Lang and Cindy Crawford, right? And that was a big, big breakthrough, right, in lesbian culture, right, of this, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> Katie Lang, this this butch being represented as an object of desire for the super feminine straight Cindy Crawford, mm-hmm. right? And it wasn't like a Pepe Le Pew situation, right, of, of Katie Lang chasing Cindy Crawford. So it was a, t- right, right. it flipped desire on its head, and was super important to lesbian culture, right? So to take that, iconography and apply it to a pornographic sex scene between a cisgender female model and a trans woman model is is a huge fucking thing to upend these sacred cows and to further queer queer imagery the way that we queer straight imagery mm-hmm. right to to really double down and and to take this pivotal moment of history and, and say yeah we can do that now right so when you start to see The possibilities that that you just didn't think existed because they never really achieved mainstream status, it can totally change the ways that you can view your own sexuality, right?
3: Yeah, totally. It was so interesting looking at the Brie Mills videos because they were, like you said, like super high quality, a variety of subject matter, and just treated really fun they were really cute <laughs> like, i enjoyed watching the trailers for most of them and was just like this is adorable like i really like how this was shot and it felt so the opposite of so much of the salacious porn of trans women in, in particular like you said i was like this is exciting that this is a possibility for thinking about the pleasure of trans women as a actual thing to consider like you were saying like it's like oh wow <laughs> What a fucked up society we have!
1: <laughs> right, and and even self desire and mutual desire among trans women still, right? Which is maybe if if there's room left to explore in in, in transfix, it'd be nice to see that. But of course, there can be other venues, right? And yes, you know, performers directing their own things, right? Because one oh, yeah. one of the prominent award cycles, right, um, there were two winners for the, for like the best DVD of the year or whatever it was. One of them went to the first collection, transfixed. The other went to a self-directed gonzo porn thing by Lena Moon, right? So, and she is one of the performers that was in um, the Katie Lang inspired piece, right? So you saw like there was just this huge spectrum even within these two DVDs that won, right? That you could do this kind of more like out there extreme type of sexuality that is written, produced and directed by the performer herself and also a female-dominant gaze on trans women that is still inclusive and fun and everything, right? So it's it was also super important for both of those to win side by side because Mm. you're not creating hierarchies of what aesthetics or what sex acts are most liberating or progressive or feminist or all of this, right? Because the whole label of feminist porn became kind of a joke right away because (laughs) it was kind of like, it was a narrow band, of sexuality so you can't really be into yes. this that or next thing and, and do feminist porn it's got to be very soft focus and of course carolyn calloway right <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Stepped in it the way that she always does but but she stepped in that same thing she's like we're making cerebral pornography and it's like <laughs> i don't think that your iq results are tied to the level of soft focus <laughs> in your pornography right or whether or not you deep throw and like to slobber on things you know you you can have both right it's okay (laughs) you know but but of course a lot of times you'll find that these quote-unquote feminist pornography it's just an aesthetic and the performers sometimes a lot of times get paid worse than they Mm -hmm. would doing more conventional stuff oh my
2: god yes oh my god
1: (laughs) and there's kind of push and pull on the economics of that right but it gets down to it is that even if you want to make indie comics, you should still pay your artists yes. what they're worth and just take longer to get the money. Then, like, we'll pay you the same rate as Boom would for a WWE comic. What the fuck is that? <laughs> right? right. You can't do that as an individual creator if, if you're going to tell the corporations they can't do that. So it's like, yeah, it'd be kind of tough to say I'm going to pay you what Frank Quitley makes at Marvel Comics to do my own little self-published gig right but mm-hmm. you can find room to negotiate in these things and and what you find in a lot of this quote-unquote feminist porn is that they they have not that great respect for making sure the performers get paid in certain ways or what the contracts stipulate so that then you know it devolves into feminism being an aesthetic right mm-hmm. instead of an actual practice
2: Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think that that's something that I've seen come up a lot uh, just in my personal life too, whenever it comes to being a creative and just trying to make sure that the people around me get paid, even just the act of doing that makes people love you so much. (laughs) Like, Even just being like, I'm going to pay you makes people be like, Oh my God, like you're my favorite person ever. And it's just like, cool, well, that's really the bare minimum. And (laughs) I'm glad that I met the bare minimum and thereby became your favorite person because, you know, the bar is that low. I think that it's especially important when we're talking about feminism. This is a social economic act, you know, it's like something where if you're trying to do something outside of the norm, like you can't duplicate the worst practices of the norm right exactly that's what i was
3: just going to say sarah because i'm right there with you like to me it's like paying people right is a queer act is a feminist act and you can't call what you're doing queer and feminist if you're not gonna fucking live your ideals you know yeah or as judith says if you do then feminist becomes an aesthetic queer becomes an aesthetic instead of an ethical framework
2: And why should it be low budget whenever (laughs) Calloway makes money? All these people make money. I barely make money. I make like $15,000 a year and I still pay people. Like, come on. (laughs)
1: Right. <laughs> hey, and, and you know, you, you can put it out there to try to crowdfund these things, to certain things. But sure. also, it, it, it's like we've, we've also got to to work on destigmatizing, um, particularly for trans women and for any definition that you want to use of woman, you know, it, particularly if you want to swap that one vowel out with an X, right, to destigmatize ourselves as consumers of this kind of thing to say, yeah, like we're here buying it. And we're enjoying it. And you know, and it's just like there's all these stupid stereotypes about the ways that that certain groups consume pornography. Like it comes through even in some like high-profile lesbian film, they're like, Oh, they're into buying gay porn, and isn't that funny and strange? And oh my it's God. and it's like it's like, <laughs> why the fuck not? Right? You know, like it's okay if they do, but it's just but it's also uh, like how often do you ever see any of these mainstream lesbian things being like, well, maybe they actually watch some lesbian porn or whatever it is, right? Or just destigmatizing the shame around watching certain things or certain acts or whatever. Um, Because here's the thing. Is it great? The pornography is like a primary vessel for self-understanding for queer people, uh, for, for trans women, for gay men and all of this, that our sexual practices are revealed to us. Largely through pornography, no, it's not great because, of course, capitalism gets involved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that can dictate the aesthetics and all of these kinds of things. But inherently, and not even necessarily just from a utopian perspective, that we just have to look at and say, like, it's okay that, like, if we have these conversations and we admit to be consumers of pornography, number one, then we can talk about the ways in, in which we consume it and what the expectations we place on these things are versus what's healthy, right? And one of the things that self-producing porn has done for a lot of performers of all walks of life, of all genders and these kinds of things, is allow them to be more frank about what goes on and how it gets made, right? Because it's like they, I think there's very few pornographers who want their work to be seen as sex ed right because it's supposed to be entertainment like gladiator was not supposed to be history lesson right (laughs) and no one's going to get except for neil degrasse tyson is going to get mad at ridley scott and say well that's historically inaccurate right (laughs) um unless these historical inaccuracies are inherently racist like that other ridley scott film but you understand what we're saying here right but then then you'll get like particularly trans performers like natalie mars who will get on twitter and she'll kind of make a statement about the expectations that get set when performers are expected to cycle off their their hormones for a certain periods so that they can ejaculate more than they would normally, right? To create this image of what we're used to seeing in terms of cis men, you know, ejaculating pornography and being like, there's got to be at least some clarity that this is what's happening, right? Because it's great if that's what dudes get off to and whatnot, but if a lot of our self-knowledge of sexual practice among trans women are and and you're seeing those kind of pop shots that are not realistic and you know you're further down the road and you're like well why is it that when i do it looks like this and when they do it looks like that and you've got all these conflicting images and and that you know to a certain degree is not as big of an issue as it was years ago because again you know when you get self-produced pornography by the performers themselves you know they've got more room to be frank about what is their body does at certain stages with x y and z intervention right and 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 these are myths that we don't know things that we do not understand until those things get explained and and we need the transparency of the industry um to, to hopefully reflect that
3: i'm just nodding vigorously that's that's what i'm doing over here just mm-hmm mm-hmm mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Right. um, And and for us, and and, and this gets into a deeply personal situation, but even sometimes, you know, we're definitely subscribers of of a few OnlyFans, right? And and you've you've got opportunities for various things. You watch clips, you can interact with performers and these kinds of things. And, like, you know, it it, it pays to pay, right? Mm -hmm. Because... You can learn things about your sexuality you might not otherwise, if you engage with sex workers, if you are, you know, a respectful patron of these things. And and for us, in terms of what we had seen and what we had experienced in our lives, we're kind of like, well, we're just the top and that's kind of the way these things go. But it was it was shown to us in a sex work context that that is not necessarily true of us. Right. And and there's a whole spectrum of things we might like to do that we never quite thought of before. And like like we were saying earlier is that the, these kinds of moments of self-discovery, whether they come through porn or other venues, is that they can have massive impacts on the way that we map out our transitions as trans women, mm-hmm. right? Like once you start to see a thing, and it's just kind of like, wow, those lasses certainly love playing with their toys and their bums, right? Um, but they're such... A like multifluous level of stigmas around like anal sex right like it's it's inherently kinky it's inherently dirty it's dangerous you're gonna hurt yourself blah 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 right all of these things that that kind of make it so seemingly you know dirty and dangerous and the stigmas that they could pile up on us and uh you know god bless anyone who managed to, to cut through that nonsense early on and be like no we're gonna try this suit and if it's fun it's fun right and, you know, for us, it was the classical example of you, you order a certain toy online and, and it comes a few weeks later and it's sitting there on the bedstand, and you look at it for a few months and you're like, it hmm, might be fun to play with this, right? <laughs> but we're not quite there yet. And then you get to the point where you're finally like, okay, we'll give this a shot, right? And to get back to the, to the Pleasantville metaphor, right? So we, we, we've got this bug plug, right? And, and you want to take it slow. Even if it's small, you probably don't want to try to get all the way in there your first trait, right? Don't push things faster than you should. Use lots of lubricant. Make sure you're using the right? Lubricant for the material that the toy is made of, right? There's Mm -hmm, a lot of mm self-education that goes into any explorations of sexuality, particularly this, right? And so we found ourselves in a situation kind of like the the Pleasantville one, right? But (laughs) the nice difference was is that we were prepared for the particular thing that happened, right? It's like you see things. You hear of things, you're told of things, but you don't necessarily fully believe that they're real until they happen to you, (laughs) right? And so we found out almost the hard way that this was not, this did not have a tragic ending it had a happy ending, but that the the sphincter, (laughs) what you want to call it, it can have as powerful a suction force as it has an expelling force, Mm -hmm. right? And so always buy toys for that area that have wide bases, okay? (laughs) because <laughs> your bot might try to eat the whole fucking thing right uh-huh. and, and we almost got in a bit of a tussle it almost got the whole thing um, <laughs> almost got the whole thing right and and it was a small toy so we thought oh you've got to learn it probably won't try to completely eat something until you get to a bigger one No, nope, that can happen pretty right fast right so <laughs> it's 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 the curse of the, of the semi-educated is what it is exactly and I was like what? Right, and you're like, oh, that threshold, you reach that threshold of experience, right? And you're like, wow, right? But then you also kind of feel you've been inducted into kind of a hall of fame or a secret level of Masonic knowledge that you did not <laughs> possess before, right? <laughs> you're like, oh, that can really happen oh in real God, life. God, yes, right? exactly. And it's so fucking tragic, right? Because it's just this basic level of self-knowledge about your own fucking body that led us <laughs> to feel like this is the, like knowledge that this is what your butt can do and this is what this can feel like and all these kinds of things um it may seem esoteric or optional because of the ways that 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 anal sex and sexuality are framed to us but of course like biologists to this day are like why does the clitoris exist it's this evolutionary mystery why do we even have it and they're always trying to come up with these anthropological ghost stories (laughs) that 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 justify it that always come down to some kind of heteronormative bullshit yes but We should treat ignorance of the dynamics of anal sex for anyone the same way that we treat the ignorance of dynamics of cis-female masturbation, right? And this is what I'm saying. If you don't know how you feel about any of those things, any aspect of, of your sexuality, then how can you be expected to be making serious decisions about surgery in that area, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you're a cis woman or trans woman, Mm -hmm. vaginal penetration and anal penetration, they're not going to be the same thing. They they, they don't feel the same way. They don't do the same things, but you, you should kind of have a sense of all of this before you make these decisions. And you know, for us, It was a large clarifying experience and all of it to say, well, no, we've not got to get this surgery because this is quite nice. And, you know, we quite enjoy the other uses of of the thing we've already got, right? Mm -hmm. But it's just, if you're not given the space to explore that and encouraged to, to kind of take a look at it at things that are already deeply stigmatized, then you could end up making an irreversible decision that walls off an entire world of sexual experience for you. And who knows, right? But the thing is, is that gatekeeping around all of that is so extreme that there's like less than a 1% regret rate when it comes to bottom surgery mm-hmm. for trans women. So we're not saying that this is being overprescribed at all. It's mm-hmm. not. Trust us, it fucking is not. So do not fucking misinterpret what we're saying here, right? But the fact is it, it's such an exclusive club that even gets it. But it's just like we're told kind of to want it. Or we're told to explore options in a very vague and nebulous way that – does not make plain the spectrum of sexual experiences that we could have or we could desire, the ways that we can be. It's always framed as, well, if you want to get a man and keep a man, then you've got to get pussy, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the discourse, right? And then that's kind of the the way it still goes. And that's still the subtext of tweets by the likes of JK Rowling, you know. Mm
3: -hmm. It echoes a lot of conversations I have with other trans people where, just my friends is what I mean, that we wish there was more space for people to explore, to ask questions, Everyone wants to treat it like you flip a switch. It's the way that I think you were saying, Emma, that sometimes trans women are treated like a subset of gay men is the way that some people conceive of AFAB non-binary people as a subset of women, like woman light, L-I-T-E, you know? Like, grab your woman zero. And that's ridiculous, right? Like, that's such a problematic way of organizing your mind because it's still cis-centric. It is still binary. It is still you're this or you're that, and you're this in this way, or you're that in that way, or it doesn't count. And it's so problematic because it shuts down the entire you know, range of experience people can have, there are so many ways to be trans. There's so many ways to be woman. There's so many ways to be non-binary and there's so many ways to be man. And it's just so disappointing that we try to shove people into these boxes, even when we're saying, oh, we want to break down some of these boundaries. We end up reinforcing and reifying that that cis binary again.
1: Hey, and that's precisely it, because even when you get into this this precise territory that we're talking about into those spaces on Tumblr and whatnot that we survived in the early 2010s, the discourse was, well, who has more privilege, trans women with penises or trans women with vaginas, right? And it got into this fucking ridiculous oppression Olympics thing, in it, and it just got derailed because it was like, it was still emphasizing the only framework that we can even think of ourselves in is in the dominant framework. Like, it's still creating hierarchies the exact language that you were talking about right it's just transposing these hierarchies well who is is more damaged by patriarchy right, you know and right. it's like it was these arguments between well trans women who get the surgery who get bomb surgery you know, are the ones whose stories we see more in film and television mm-hmm. and whatnot, but those who don't don't have to pay for it if you live in a country where you've got to pay for it and don't have to jump through as many hoops to get what they want. So it just became this argument between which one of those things is a more oppressive experience. And it's like yeah. who fucking cares, right? It's exactly. not important. It's not gonna liberate either one of us yes, than to say Exactly. You know, it, it it just gets to be fucking ridiculous and you cannot cut through that stuff, right? Um and and so the whole thing right and and the big reason why we wanted to come to you to this particular podcast to discuss this because we decided like you know we want to be more open sexually because we've reached a point where we feel comfortable talking about our sexuality uh more publicly right um but also because we've learned so much more mm. and so we could have gone to a few different places but we thought here here's where we want to go because we want to contribute to reimagining these bonds of affinity that that we have within these communities right and then it gets back to what you were saying and what we were saying earlier right about trans women and and amab uh, non-binary people being viewed as an annex of gay culture and the equivalent afab non-binary people and uh trans men being viewed as a subset of, of the lesbian experience right is that we need to just explode those entire ideas and understand that our networks of affinity right are going to be non-euclidean there's going to be a fucking Klein bottle right there's there there's going to be a mobius strip right Mm -mm. like like we have to accept these things right you're gonna make me cry oh that's so beautiful (laughs) (laughs) i'm totally crying we we were kind of just you know blagging this from uh donna hedderway to be honest (laughs) i'll
3: take it (laughs)
1: <laughs> right, but 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 you look at that right in the founding mythologies of cultural feminism or radical feminism. It's called like it was just replacing the ghost stories of patriarchal anthropology with ghost stories of this feminist view that, that just said like, great, right, we all have this one basis of belonging, right, and and it's a set of ovaries, and this is why the world is the way that it is, right, and. And so when that started to get questioned, when, you know, Christine Jorgensen came around and people started to remember these, those things happened. And then you get this huge fucking backlash with that awful fucking awful cursed text, the transsexual empire and all of that nonsense. Hey. Because instead of like, oh, no, let's embrace a more complex view of the world. It's like, fuck you. We would reject it. It's imaginary. You're in eighth grade. Okay. And the teacher says, this is what an atom looks like. There's these perfect little spheres. They're called positrons. What are they called? Protons, right? Protons, neutrons, <laughs> right? And and they spin in little circles around it, this big knob of little balls, right? And that's that's what everything is made of. The universe just comes down to all these little maps of the solar system. It's quite beautiful. It's quite Linear or Da Vinci, right? Got a love with the Ninja Turtles have done for us culturally, right? But <laughs> then then you get to you get to college, right? Or you get to high school, and they say, Wow, you know, we just taught you that because it was easy to look at. And because we could send you to Michael's and you could build a thing yourself, right? And God love that poor child that got uranium. But then it's like, well, this is what it really looks like. It looks like that Joy Division album cover more. It's just these <laughs> these these bumps on a fucking thinger, right? And and we don't know quite what they look like. And Wow, and-
2: reality as that specific Joy Division cover <laughs> is blowing my mind. And that would explain why every time I see that cover, I can't stop staring at it.
1: Right, uh, It sucks you in like the void, um, <laughs> despite the problematic history attached to their band name. But you don't right. get to grade 10 or grade 12 or whatever science and, and all of a sudden turn into the people that got pissed off at Copernicus, right? You don't <laughs> say, fuck you, fuck your models of of, of neutrons and positrons and all this shit." You know, we're just going to throw science into the ocean and say, fuck you. We're going to adapt to that knowledge, right? And so that is really... Kind of what happened within that certain subset of feminism. They just did not want to have to reevaluate these cherished Absolutely. assumptions about these particular networks of affinity. Because right. to be honest and to be quite fair, right, when the Feminine Misty came out, women, like white middle class women, <laughs> cisgender white middle-class women were flung into the suburbs right it was like well <laughs> the men are back we don't want you in the workforce mm-hmm. and we're taking away your government subsidized child care because it encouraged you to go work particularly in the united kingdom everyone got free childcare in the united kingdom during the war so that the women could leave the house mm-hmm. right? and they could go work but then it was like oh no no, 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 we cannot destabilize city. No, 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 put a, put a lid on this, put a lid on this. Right, that's precisely what happened right, in, in the HUSA comments in England at the time. They're like, shit, we've got to put a lid back on this genie. And so the suburbs get built in that great post-war expansion in the United States. You know, California becomes what we now know as California with all these fucking, like Burbank, right? The United States becomes <laughs> Burbank. Um, and so they're, they're home alone all day with these kids and... You know, they don't have these same networks of where they can meet other women and know them and things. And doctors are prescribing them amphetamines out of boredom. Here, Mm -hmm. take some fucking speed because you're bored out of your tits, right? (laughs) And so... They get a hold of a book, like the Feminine Mystique, and there yes. are three martinis in. Because God love you, what the <laughs> fuck else are you gonna do in the nineteen fifties at home without Twitter or any goddamn thing? There are no Real Housewives of anywhere yet. There's no Kardashians, right? There's fucking nothing but crochet, right? And those fucking awful casseroles, right, with like tuna and, and Jello to, to do. So, so they read the Feminine Mystique. And they're like, oh. Right, we've got this common history and a common destiny the same way that nationalism works right? if we say oh we're all english we all have a common origin and a common destiny and this the thing that ties us together and sometimes you can get some good stuff out of that but other times you just get fucking nazis quite literally
3: <laughs> oh my god that's the best and, conclusion to
1: that <laughs> hey, and, and, and and so they so i we're sympathetic to the fact that you develop this new peer group this new new sense of of self-awareness and then it's like oh no now we've got to account for this whole other thing but we've we've got no sympathy for like the violence of the backlash against mm-hmm. it right and no, yeah. and we need to to somehow completely destroy this concept of trans womanhood in order to preserve what we have that's that's just fascism that's just Mm -hmm. bollocks right uh it's what that is
2: always yeah they're the very worst i was thinking about how the feminine mystique is the book that they talk about throughout the stepford wives so quite (laughs) literally like in the suburbs (laughs) like and it's uh it's interesting i think because ira levin writes that and it's like you know, pretty complicated for a guy in the 70s, but that's like what his (laughs) understanding of feminism is. Mm -hmm. And so even in stuff like that, you have this kind of gender essentialism. Obviously, there's a lot of conversation to be had about the Stepford Wives on pretty much every (laughs) angle. But I just think it's always very interesting, like where that specific text pops up and how little commentary there is about like the essentialism to it.
1: But you also cannot like discount its importance at the time. And like we were saying, of course, properly, you know, situating things in in history. Um, But yeah, Yeah. because like it was within a couple of years of we can't remember precisely what the timeline was. It was within a couple of years that like the transsexual phenomenon and the feminine mystique, they popped up like within two fucking years of each other. Right. And of course, the transsexual phenomenon was written by a clinician like an important progressive for the time clinician but it was not like a self-reported right, you
3: know, right. um,
1: idea of this is what being trans is but it ripped through the trans community the same way that the feminine mystique ripped through the suburban three martini lunch and uh, tuna casserole set did right <laughs>
2: Yep. And Joanne from the Stepford Wives. Hey,
1: <laughs> right, precisely.
3: Well, I think that when you were talking about the Mobius strip and making me cry, what, what occurs to me as we, as part of all this conversation is what's at stake is knowing, right? Like what's so hard about breaking down this this cis binary way of looking at people is that it means you can't know. Can't just look at someone and be like, I have all the information. I'm in control. And that is very hard for people. And it means questioning what you think you know of someone else's experience as well. And that's something that people don't enjoy. It can feel really scary, but what what's to be gained? What's to be gained is is freedom. And I think it's very apt that we talked about Pleasantville because that is what is to be gained. When the color comes back, it's because people have freed themselves through the act of trying to become free, right? And that's, that's what I see being at stake when we talk about, how we think about how we gender people, how trans women are allowed to access your sexuality, but also spirituality, I guess, as well. And and how we're all allowed to be questioning, like... Do I want a butt plug? Like, that's a question everybody should be allowed to ask, encouraged to ask and explore. And and that's the freedom that's at stake because it's not just about the butt plug, right? It's about understanding one's own body as a site of pleasure. And I think so much of Adrienne Marie Brown's pleasure activism and, and how she talks about pleasure as this act of resistance. So I I, I just god I, this has been like such an
2: incredible conversation <laughs> and I feel like if we need like 18 more episodes <laughs> which is what your Patreon is going to exactly. be <laughs> <laughs> kind of <laughs> so that's good and once again I'm already subscribed so I'm set
1: right yeah and and you see there was a psychoanalysis to be the name of Jacques Lacan and he has this thing that's called the mirror um <laughs> phase <laughs> <laughs> as popularly referred to in a little film called the matrix right? <laughs> um but we, we, we we've we not no we've not got anything to add to that because it was just so brilliantly you know set down right but the thing is the space to have the conversation that we're having right now had to be hard one of five years of fighting through bullshit oh, on yeah. our part and who the fuck knows on the culture in general right and it's just kind of like so what we, we've got a fucking ceasefire here and we've got a rush to fill the gap, right? Because there's not some big, awful, cataclysmic thing specific to this and specific to the industry that we work in that allows us that space to talk about, right? But also, kind of, in order for the industry to kind of slow down and stop mocking it up and creating all these hassles that that have not allowed us to, to take a breath and reevaluate these situations is, you know, a global pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. So that kind of says something in and of itself.
3: (gasps) Oh, yes, it does. Well, Judith, I was wondering if you wanted to tell people about where they could find your Patreon.
1: The whole campaign, like, you can find this on Twitter. So we're going to be, like, linking back to Twitter, right? So Twitter is is the way to do that.
2: Yes. Great Twitter to follow. Yeah, in general. (laughs) Been following for quite some time.
1: Just to bring it right back, and and, and just, just to say that, you know, even if we go back to where this all started, and the whole thing of trying to get away from the reactive cycle, and the problems that are made, is that it's still, at the end of it, it gets looked at, like, what does this cost the career of a James Robinson, of a Gail Simone, of a Matthew Rosenberg, of a Howard Chaikin, right? And it's like, well, are we going to cancel a bad actor, or are we going to forgive someone who we recognize has been trying all of this time and is fundamentally a good person, all that all of that is is so secondary or mm-hmm. should be so secondary, so tertiary, right? Suppose it is important, but it's also quite personal, right? And you can set your boundaries where you fucking want. Mm-hmm. And there's there should never be kind of groupthink around these kinds of cancellations or whatnot. So if if you've got a particular attachment to the way that, that Howard Chakin draws um complex old timey uh lingerie, right, which is probably the only real you know, differentiating factor of his cartooning because he's quite good at the details of garters and, you know, uh <laughs> corsets and things like that. But if you feel too tied to that particular aesthetic to not read that man's comics ever again, who are we to judge you mm-hmm. of that? So as <laughs> long as you don't get on Twitter and start yelling about how images mean nothing and, you know, words are oh my God. and blah, oh my blah, God. blah, 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 <laughs> blah. Right, um... Uh, the way that that some did back in the day then it's uh, it's fine right and and if you want to say well we don't feel like we trust this person that person and we're fine right or if you feel that you can do it so so those are conversations to be had right but we've never actually charted the damage of this properly right Mm -hmm. and this is something that we have said about ipv in the industry right and sexual assault and harassment right is that People start to talk about can Eddie Berganza be redeemed before we even know how many fucking victims the Mm -hmm. man's got and how many of – and what those interactions were, right? And how many were were groping or assault, how many were, like, just being homophobic to artists who are never going to work at DC who otherwise could have, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Maya Nord. So you don't even know what – you don't know the scope of the damage that you're talking about, right, when it comes to more severely bad actors like him. And, you know, we were, I don't want to say guilty of this, but we were certainly part of this in the sense that, like, when we were looking at at all of these things, we didn't know how to chart the the cumulative damage of things that happen in, like, Airboy. Like, what does it do to our perceptions of our own sexuality, right? When we see this shite, right? Because we don't know, like, uh, maybe it was, like, 2010, 2012 that we were like, yeah, we're a girl. This is our whole thing, right? So it was within three fucking years that we had to step up and say, well, this is why this is NAF, right? We still had so far to go in understanding ourselves sexually that we could not even begin to truly understand that the harm that portrayals like that do. So we could not quantify it properly. But there was also no room in the conversation, mm-hmm. right? Because the question that we were we were getting, and it's like fair, this is a fair question, right? When we thought we were fucking nobody, that the only thing that we had, you know, contributed to comics. At that time was just some some lovely Batgirl reviews, right? We had serious players in the industry saying like, well, what you think, like, what's the what should be the consequences here? How do we deal with the James Robinson? And we got the same questions about when we started you know, reporting on harassment, like what like what does the the road forward look like for Brian Wood? And we we're like, we're fucking clueless. We've got no clue. Thank you for asking us. But we're not experts in this. And nobody knew what the answers to the questions mm-hmm. were, right? So it's not like anybody was, those same players had any reason or background to understand and say, well, what are the effects on trans women of this? How does this impact your sexuality, your own perception of, of yourself and other trans women as sexual subjects and objects, right? Mm. It, it was more, this is bad. Those are bad words to be using. And that looks gross. And that's mean, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Um, hmm
1: But you also look at, right, what happened with the entire Brandon Graham situation, which was far more illuminating than anybody hoped that it would be, because the whole thing was you get into that chaser language too quick, right? And and we've written about this because, like... As an inter-community discussion, we have ways to frame what is and isn't a chaser. And us in particular, we're not that interested in cis male attention. We're not interested in cis straight male attention at all. You can interpret that however, which way you want, but it's not really a part of our sexuality, right? So that's not something that we are ever going to be experts in. But at the same time, like when you are talking to other trans women who sleep with straight men or at least cisgender men, and they'll tell you, like, this was a good date, this was a bad date. And, like, you say, oh, that guy was a chaser. I was like, well, how do you know? Like, what do you separate it out with? Because men are horny, right? And they'll say, well, this is the way he talked to me, this is the way he did. You know, you can have those conversations. But if you start throwing it out to the entire fucking comic book industry that so-and-so is a chaser, they cannot disambiguate <laughs> that phrase. Because in, in common usage, if you – like, of course, like, this is um, – fuck, we don't want to use this word. But – um. When you say chaser, like chaser can mean almost anything. But like the full term is tranny chaser, right? It's fucking awful. It's a terrible demeaning yep. phrase. It's awful. It's the worst, right? And you have to acknowledge what the first half of that fucking term is because that's the way that people still, you know, interpret it. So
3: yeah, just so you drop it world, off doesn't mean that's not what people are thinking. Yeah,
1: right. Thank you. Right. And that's precisely it because your average Joe on the street cannot tell the difference between the stigma of Mm -hmm. being attracted to Mm -hmm. trans women and someone who has a particularly destructive or gross fixation on particular things about trans women that dehumanize them uh, in, in those sexual interactions, right? And those are two very different things. And so you've got to be careful when you have that conversation and there was no care had in that conversation, right? And that has impacts because if the broader view of your sexuality is that it's a pathology, To be attracted to you and you're not using language that carefully distinguishes that then it is going to damage your relationship to your own body and your your own ability to view other trans women as people that you would date that you would fuck that you would love right um it it damages all of that when you're not careful about how we discuss this right and so the readiness and the immediacy to cancel mr Graham for his misdeeds was swift right and it should have been swift but here's the fucking problem with that swiftness the swiftness was not a sudden recognition that trans women need to be protected in this industry it was because wow we view this to be so fucking creepy and inherent that of course we want nothing to do with this man right because there's a huge gap in the way that the same people viewed say Brian Wood or Eric Escavel or like mm-hmm. Eddie Berganza and the immediate backlash against Brandon Graham, right? So things operated largely the way they should have in his case, but not for the right fucking reasons. And Mm. nobody wants to admit that those Mm. were the reasons that he was turfed away so fast. The truly dark side that we discussed and a couple other people talked about since is that the problem with all of this is that he had built up a great deal of um, goodwill in the community because he was the person who was willing to stick his neck out the most to get trans women in comics published before the whole fucking idiotic Dilraj Man cover controversy. And what we mean by idiotic is that they should have known how people are going to take that cover and they shouldn't have published it. But before that whole controversy in Ireland, it was like the single most trans inclusive publication that we had in mainstream comics. Could you imagine Image publishing anything like that without getting pushed to do it by the likes of brandon and emma rios right like they pushed hard to get us into the conversation and to get us published right and our interactions with with brandon and talking about trans representation in comics we understand that they've got a whole other dark side to them now that they we did not understand was there when we had those conversations with him but they were more substantive more respectful and more in depth than we could have with any other cis person in this industry right we could have frank and interesting and educational conversations about the dynamics of of trans women in in porn in in comics and elsewhere and kind of like things that we did not know that were tropes in that kind of porn because we didn't watch it because it, it's just so straight-leaning to us right like the kind of stuff that we were discussing and 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 the kind of more fetishistic anime looking stuff, the Fudanari or whatever you call it. right? But, you know, we could discuss the aesthetics and he could teach me things about the background and those things that nobody else could. He had a broad base of knowledge and he was going out there and getting people hired. And obviously there was a dark side to all of that. And, you know, we're not going to apologize for the man, but it puts a point on the fact that when the curtain got raised on his behavior and he reacted so poorly and so violently to it that it demolished an entire pipeline of getting trans women published in comics that still does not exist to this day. So far as we know, no editor, no other creator has has created that much opportunity in that lane of comics. And it is a shameful part of the discussion that nobody wants to tackle head on, right? Right. And so now, you know, trans cartoonists are put in the place of we kind of have to have the conversation that second wave feminists had to have at the beginning of the second wave, right? When cultural feminism, which we also refer to as radical feminism, which it's worst than devolved into turfism. Was creating a women's culture and women's institutions and women's bookstores, right? And women's sex toy stores and this kind of thing. And it's kind of like what, like we kind of have to build up our own exclusive infrastructure in order to have a place to survive. And it's like we feel two ways about this. The first, and and certainly when when people who are in a great position to discuss it, like Sarah Horrocks bring it up, like it's like yeah, we need you know mutual support systems and infrastructures where we can tell our own stories without having to adapt them to the cis male gaze. But we also came up through Tumblr, and we also know our second wave feminist history, so we know the problems of how insular that can get, right, and how you can end up reproducing hierarchies in. The patriarchal world within your own communities and it's kind of like how do you guard against that and if we create our own mutual support systems do we unfortunately also create a ghetto for ourselves that we cannot get out of that like are cis people going to read it are they going to interact with it are they going to learn the lessons from it will they give us opportunities outside of those spaces or will they just say the trans people or the trans women or whoever organize that way you know, they have their own little thing, so we'll just engage in some benign neglect and we will not, like you've got your own spaces over there so we won't invite you over here. Or you've got to kind of decide if you want to be in one lane or the other, right? Are you going to be in that small space or do you want to try to get a gig at Marvel Comics, right? So it's it creates a whole web of questions of how we proceed and that's kind of uh, the crossroads that, that we think that, that trans cartoonists are at at this particular moment because of the collapse of the only viable infrastructure we had at the time, because it apparently was partially masterminded by someone who turned out to be quite deleterious to, to to us.
2: Definitely. Yeah, that's something that I think almost nobody discusses is the fact that there hasn't been that in the industry, right? Like there hasn't been strong advocates or like there are advocates, but it's not necessarily hiring advocates, right?
1: Correct. Right. Um, and, and that consultancy... Is not turning into a pipeline into editorial jobs, right? Because it's right, like, it, which is kind accept, of baffling. No, it's not quite. Part of it is the size and the scope of the industry, right? And the number of right. jobs available, right? If, you know, it, it's one thing for a Hollywood studio um, to hire you as a fucking rounding error, right? Uh, but it's another if someone can free up. And here's the thing is that some of the under the table consulting work that we've done was that was paid was paid out of pocket by editors who could not disclose higher up the ranks that they are hiring us right that Mm -hmm. we should not have ever seen any of the documents that we did right for various reasons so they went out their way to hire us to make sure that this shite works well right but also that means that that they pay out of pocket themselves so to even get us in as consultants they sometimes have to take the hit personally and pay us our a rate and then like so how do you you then create a pipeline out of a clandestine consultancy situation and into a legitimate job right and you know some of 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 these gigs that we've done you know turns into like a a positive whisper network where if you you work with a rate editor or a creator they may not necessarily say the whole thing but they'll pass your name on and say hey so and so is go to x y and z maybe give them a look for this right but it's quite rare and there's no infrastructure for it. Mm -hmm. So it's not a pipeline into the industry for us to do other things than just tell you how to represent us.
3: Right. You're not getting that opportunity. Again, it's the same as what we were talking about different context of like, you're, you're not getting the opportunity to explore your own creative drives and interests because you are still in this sort of, like you were saying, clandestine role where you are helping other people improve their work but that isn't, that's still not getting out trans voices about trans experiences.
1: Right, like, let's say that we would like to be an editor in the industry, which it's not one of our top dreams, but let's just say it was, right? As much as we love to, you know, chat with a Batman writer about how to deal with this trans character they want to introduce, you know, maybe we also want to be their editor on a normal Mr. Freeze story, right? Mm-hmm. And get to see that and shape it and mold it, right? And, and, and get to you know that that fun proximity to greatness right or or whatever it is that that you're passionate about editing is right you won't be able to edit a script for like the the coherence and the sharpness of a story where batman is fighting the joker just as much as it is a side story about leslie tompkins prescribing hormones to alicia yo right like Mm -hmm. you have a broad base of interest and it's we talk about this in representation all the time and it's kind of like well, you know, there's women who. Oh, right. Well, the teeny fucking Howard, right? Um, little Miss Excalibur and and the the, the ten of swords. Um, you know, she she wrote that piece for um, for Paste, right, about Becky Clonen writing the fucking Punisher, right? And it's nobody's great feminist ambition to write Frank fucking Castle, <laughs> Mister Francis Castaglione, but. Becky Cloonan loves her some violence, right? And loves her writing some perfect Steve Dillon violence. uh, God rest his soul, right? And so Tini was saying, you know, it's it's great to write women and we want to expand the way the women are perceived, right? But we'd also love to write some fucking men (laughs) at the same time, right? Yeah. And it's like, Brian Edward Hill wants to write Batman. He wants to write Bruce Wayne, right? Not just, you know, like Nighthawk or like, quote-unquote black batman of some kind right he wants to write fucking batman you know or you know who knows maybe maybe Vita wants to write um aquaman right um you don't know right like people have diverse interests mm-hmm. and it's not like even you know when white white men want to write more than white men most of the time right i mean scott snyder he was. <laughs> he he's done other things he doesn't he's not like oh no i only want to rate you know bruce wayne because he's a straight white man and that seems to fit me perfectly well you know he might want to rate poison ivy or something and he doesn't need some grand fucking narrative of why he wants to do that so why the fuck should teeny howard require to write a fucking manifesto in order to get you know considered to rate nightwing or Mm -hmm. something right it's Mm -hmm. uh, but you 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 get what we're saying
2: yes (laughs) Most definitely. I feel like that's a pretty good spot to end up on. Because, yeah, I mean, I guess that that's kind of just like the state of things. Yeah, totally. Precisely. Well, Judith. (laughs) It's like a fairly like bleak, but also good ending in a way, because it's definitely putting it back in the realm of just like, all right, well, here we are.
3: This is the state (laughs) of comics as of recording in may this has been delightful i mean every time we get to talk to you i'm like holy shit my fucking brain is exploding and i also feel that way you know following you on twitter whatnot and i just think it's so exciting that you wanted to spend this time with us and share all of your wisdom and your upcoming projects we're super excited obviously sarah and i will be patrons backing you and we hope that all of our listeners will become your patrons too and so when your patreon is live we will be sharing it out
1: Hey, right, um, And we always appreciate the fact that you're willing to give us this much time. Uh, we're still a bit mystified by the even the modest success that we've had so far, right? Because we're not necessarily smarter than anyone. We're just a bit more flamboyant, a bit louder <laughs> and, and a bit cheekier about it than some. And, and that gets our foot in the door. And, and sometimes it turns into phenomenal opportunities like these. If there's two things that we could leave it on, number one, is confront your cherished beliefs, which mm. is a little bit of a tech sector, future forecaster type Warren Ellis sort of thing to say. But it's like, let's investigate, like, what are the actual bonds of community that we have, right? And are they expansive enough? Um, And, and are they nimble enough to do what we need to? Do we need to get locked into these kinds of things? Because one thing that Michelle Foucault says a lot that is very controversial, will always be controversial is that our society was organized into groupings based on sexual practice and certain sexual acts were regarded as certain things, right? And and we've congealed culture and modes of dress and modes of speech and all of these things around that, right? So he's not necessarily saying that, oh my God, like it's terrible that you've created gay culture, but it's important to remember that even the designation of gay is completely arbitrary. Mm-hmm. We could organize sexuality on completely different bases and, and those cultures and stuff. But this is what we have. And it's fine. This is what we are given. But we can still adapt it and make it nimble. And, you know, as, as the great Angela Davis has quite recently sorry, said, is that we should be expansive of our definition of woman. Right. And that was her response to basically trans exclusionary rhetoric in, in feminist and activist spaces. You know, be expansive, be open, you know, um, don't just be inclusive, be welcoming, Mm. offer equity. And the the second thing that we leave you on is that you can find us on Twitter at (laughs) E-M-M-A-H-O-U-X-B-O-I-S.
2: Woohoo! Well said.
3: podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm Bitch.
2: If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm Essie Fleenor,
3: and you can learn more about me at EssieFleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at
2: se underscore Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at ChurchfireMusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at EarthControlPill.BandCamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to
3: recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization.